Hello, I'm Byron Reese with Kickohm. From ultra-low power devices using microcontrollers to complex applications using dedicated machine learning processors, AI runs on ARM. The AI revolution will transform every aspect of our future driven by disruptors like ARM and the bright minds featured on this Voices in AI podcast. Enjoy! This is Voices in AI, brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, our guest is Bill Mark. He heads up SRI International's Information and Computing Sciences Division, which consists of 250 researchers in four laboratories who create new technology in virtual personal assistance, information security, machine learning, speech, natural language, computer vision, all the things we talk about on the show. He holds a PhD in computer science from MIT. Welcome to the show, Bill. Good to be here. So let's start off um, with kind of little semantics. Why is artificial intelligence artificial? Is it artificial because it's not really intelligence or, or what? No, it's artificial because it's created by human beings as opposed to nature. So in that sense, it's it's an artifact, um, just like any other kind of physical artifact. In this case, it's usually a software artifact. But at its core, then, it truly is intelligent, and its intelligence doesn't differ in substance, only in, in degree of, from human intelligence? I don't think I'd make that statement. I think, so the, the definition of artificial intelligence to me is always a bit of a challenge. The artificial part I think is easy, we just covered that. The intelligence part, I've looked at different definitions of artificial intelligence and most of them use the word intelligence in the definition. (laughs) So that doesn't seem to get us much farther. Um, I could say something like it's artifacts that can acquire and or apply knowledge, but then we're gonna have a conversation about what knowledge is. So I think what I get out of it is it's, it's not very satisfying to talk about intelligence at this level of generality. Because yes, in answer to your question, artificial intelligence systems do things that human beings do. Um, in different ways, and as you, as you indicated, not, not with the same fullness or level that human beings do. That doesn't mean that they're not intelligent. They have certain capabilities that we regard as intelligent. You know, it's really interesting because at its core, you're right, there's no consensus definition on intelligence. There's no consensus definition on life or death. And I think that's it's kind of really interesting that like these big, big ideas aren't just all that simple. So I'll just ask you one more question along these lines then. Uh, you know, Alan Turing posed the question in 1950, can a machine think? What would you say to that? Oh, I would say yes, but now we, now we have to wonder what think might mean. Um, because think is, is one aspect of intelligent behavior. It indicates some kind of reasoning or reflection. I think that there are software systems that do reason and reflect. So I will say yes, I think. All righty. So now let's get to SRI International. For uh, the listeners who may not be familiar with the company, can you give us kind of the whole background and some of the 
some of the things you've done to date and why you exist and when it started okay. and all of that. Great. So um, just a few words about SRI International. Uh, SRI International is a nonprofit research and development company. And that, that's a pretty rare category. Um, a lot of companies do research and development, a fewer than used to, but still quite a few. And very few have research and development as their business, but that is our business. We're also nonprofit, which really means that um, we don't have shareholders. We still have to make money, but all the money we make has to go into the mission of the organization, which is to do R&D for the benefit of mankind. So that's the general thing. It started out as part of Stanford. It was formerly the Stanford Research Institute. Um, it's been independent since 1970. And it's one of the largest of these R&D companies in the world, about 2,000 people. Now, um, the information computing sciences part, as you said, that's about 250 people. And probably the, the thing that we're most famous for nowadays is that we created Siri. Siri was a spin-off of one of my labs, the AI Center. And it was a spin-off company of SRI. That's one of the things we do. And it was acquired by Apple and has now become world famous. Um, but we've been in the field of artificial intelligence for decades. Another famous SRI accomplishment would be Shaky the Robot, which was really the first robot that could move around and reason and interact. Um, that was many years ago. Um, but we've also, in more recent history, um, been involved in very large government-sponsored AI projects, which we've led, and we just have lots of things that we've done in AI. Is, uh, is it just a coincidence that Siri and SRI are, are you know, just one letter different, or is that uh, deliberate? It's a coincidence. Um, when SRI starts companies, we bring in entrepreneurs from the outside almost always because it would be pretty unusual for an SRI employee to be the right person to be the CEO of a startup company. It does happen, but it's unusual. Anyway, in this case, we brought in a guy named Dag Kitlas, and he's of Norwegian extraction, and he chose the name. Siri is a, is a Norwegian woman's name, and uh, that became the name of the company. And actually, Somewhat to our surprise, Apple retained that name when they launched Siri. So let's go through some of the things that your group works on. Um, uh, could, could we start with those sorts of technologies? Uh, do you, are there other things in that family of um, conversational AI that you work on? And are you working kind of on the next generation of that? And, and so yes, forth. indeed. In fact, we've been working on the next generation for a while now. So I like to um, think about conversational systems in, in different categories. Human beings have conversations for all kinds of reasons. We have 
social conversations um, where there's not particularly any objective but you know being friendly and socializing. We have um, task-oriented kinds of conversations and th those are the ones that we we're focusing on mostly in this next generation. There you're you're conversing with someone in order to perform a task or solve some problem. And what's really going on is um, it's a collaboration. You and the other person or people are working together to solve a problem. So I'll use an example from the world of online banking because we have another spin-off called Casisto that is using this next generation kind of conversational interaction technology. So let's say that you walk into a bank and you say to the person behind the counter, um, I want to deposit um, $1,000 in checking. And the person on the other side, the teller, says, uh, from which account? And you say, how much do I have in savings? And the teller says, um, you have $1,500, but if you take 1000 out, um, you'll stop earning interest. Just take that little interaction. That's a conversational interaction. People do this all the time. But it's actually very sophisticated and requires knowledge. So if you, if you now think of not a teller, but a software system, a software agent that you're conversing with, the software agent, let, so we'll go through the same little interaction. The person says, um, I want to deposit $1,000 in checking. And the teller said, um, from which account? The software system has to know something about banking. It has to know that a deposit is a kind of a money transfer kind of interaction. And it requires a from account and a to account. And in this case, the to account has been specified, but the from account hasn't been specified. So in many cases, the person would simply ask for the missing information. So that, that's the first part of the interaction. So again, the teller says from which account, and the person says, how much do I have in savings? Well, that's not an answer to the question. In fact, it's another question being introduced by the person, and it's actually a balance inquiry question. They want to know how much they have in savings. Now, when I go through this the first time, the reason I do this twice is that when I went through it the first time, almost nobody even notices that that wasn't an answer to the question. But if you try out a lot of the the personal assistance systems that are out there, they tend to crater on that kind of interaction because they they don't have enough conversational knowledge to be able to handle that kind of thing. And then the interaction goes on where the the teller is providing information about beyond what the person asked about potentially losing interest or it might be that they would get a fee or something like that. And that, that illustrates the point that we expect our conversational partners 
to be proactive, not just to, to simply answer our questions, but to actually help us solve the problem. So that's the kind of interaction that we're building systems to support. Um, it's very different than the personal assistants that are out there, like Siri and Cortana which, um, and Google, which are meant to be very general. They don't, they don't have, I mean, Siri doesn't really know anything about banking, which isn't a criticism. It's not supposed to know anything about banking. But if you want to get your banking done over your mobile phone, then you're going to need a system that knows about banking. So that's one example of sort of next generation conversational interaction. So how much are we going to be able to use transfer learning to generalize from that? So you build that bot, that highly verticalized bot that knows everything about banking, does that, does anything it learned make it easier now for it to do real estate and then for it to do retail and then all the other things? Or is it the case that like every single vertical, all 10,000 of them are going to need kind of to start over from scratch? It's a really good question. And um, I would say with uh, some confidence that it's, it's not about starting over from scratch um, because some, some amount of the knowledge will transfer to different domains. So um, real estate has transactions. If there's knowledge about transactions, some of that knowledge will carry over. Some of it won't. Okay. You said, um, the knowledge that it has learned, um, we need to get pretty specific about that. Um, we do build systems to learn, but not, not all of their knowledge is picked up by learning. Some of it is built in to begin with. So there's the knowledge that has been um, explicitly represented, some of which will transfer over, and then there's knowledge that has been learned in other ways. Some of that will transfer over as well, but it's less clear cut how that will work. But it's not starting from scratch every time. So eventually, though, you get to something that could pass the Turing test. It could, that you could ask it, you know, so if I went into the bank and, uh, you know, uh, wanted to move $1,000, what would be the first question you'd ask me? And it would say, oh, from what account? Um, and so I assume we're, uh, so my experience with, with like every kind of candidate Turing test system, and nobody purports, you know, that we're there by a long shot, but my first question is always, what's bigger, a nickel or the sun? And I haven't found a single one that got, you know, that can answer the question. Right. So, so how just, far away is that? Well, first, just for clarity, um, we, we're not building these systems in order to pass the Turing test. And in fact, um, something that you'll find in most of these systems is that um, outside of their domain of expertise, say banking in this case, they don't know very much of anything. So um, again, uh, the systems that we built wouldn't know things like what's bigger than nickel or the sun. So the, the, whole, um, the whole idea of the Turing test is that it's, it's, you know, it, it's meant to be some form of, of evaluation 
or contest for seeing whether you have created something that's truly intelligent. Because again, this, this was sort of one of Turing's approaches to answering this question of what is intelligence. So he, he didn't really answer that question, but he said, if you could develop an artifact that could pass this kind of test, then you, you would have to say that it was as intelligent or it had human-like behavior at, at the very least. So answer to your question, um, I think we're very far from that because we aren't so good at um, getting the knowledge that I would say most people have into a computer system yet. So let's talk about that for a minute. Why is it so hard and why is it so, I'll go out on a limb and say easy for people. Like why does a toddler pick up on a toddler can tell me what's bigger in the color of the sun. Um, so why, why is it so hard? And what makes humans so able to do it? Well, um, I don't know that anyone knows the answer to that question. I certainly don't. I will say that um, toddlers, human beings, um, spend time experiencing the world and are also taught so um, human beings are not born knowing that the sun is bigger than a nickel. However, over time, they experience what the sun is. And um, at some point, they will experience what a nickel is. And they'll be able to make that comparison. By the way, they also have to learn how to make comparisons. And... I'm actually, it'd be interesting to ask toddlers that question because the sun doesn't look very big um, when you look up in the sky. So that brings in a whole other class of human knowledge, which I'll, I'll just broad brush call book learning. Um, we would, I certainly would not know that the, the sun is really huge unless I'd learned that in school. So human beings have different ways of learning only a very small sample of which have been implemented in artificial intelligence learning systems. You know, there's, a, there's Calvin and Hobbes where his dad tells Calvin that it's a myth that the sun's big. It's really only the size of a quarter. And he said, look, hold it up in the sky. They're the same. And then he's like, oh, and, and it's set somewhere near Albuquerque. <laughs> he tells you all these things. And so, uh, so point taken. But let me ask it this way. You know, humans, human DNA is, I don't know, 600, I'm going to get this a little off, but it's like 670 meg of, of data, it's, you know. And if you look at how much of that's different than, say, uh, a banana, you know, it's a, it's a small amount that is different. And then... You say, well, how much of it's different than, say, um, a chimp? And then it's a minuscule amount. So that whatever that minuscule difference in, in code is, just a, a few meg, is that the, 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 the kind of the secret to intelligence? Like, is that a proof point that there may be some very basic, simple um, ways to acquire and generalize knowledge that we just haven't kind of stumbled across yet, but there may be something that gives us this generalized learner we can just plug into the internet and the next day it knows everything. <laughs> um, I don't make that jump. Um, I think the fact 
that um, a relatively small amount of genetic material differentiates us from other species um, doesn't indicate that something that there's something simple out there because the the way the, that those genes uh, or the genetic material impacts the world is very complex and can you know lead to all kinds of things that could be very hard for for us to understand and try to emulate i also um don't know that there is a generalist learner anyway i think as i said human beings seem to have different ways of learning things and that doesn't say to me that there's one general approach you know i guess that that's really back in the dartmouth uh days when they thought they could knock out a lot of the ai problem in a summer it was in the hope that 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 intelligence followed laws like you know a few simple laws like the laws of physics explain so much and i guess it's then kind of the consensus moved to we're kind of a hack of a thousand pieces of, of, of kind of a thousand specialized things that we do that all come together and make generalized intelligence. And it sounds like you're more in that camp that it's just a bunch of hard work and we have to kind of tackle these domains one at a time. Is that fair? I'm actually kind of in between. I, okay. I think that there are, there are general methods. There, there are um, general representations, but there's also a lot of specific knowledge that's required to be competent in, in some activity. So I'm, I'm, I'm into a sort of a hybrid. Right. But you do think building an AGI, generalized intelligence, it's as versatile as a human is theoretically possible, I assume? Yes. So you mentioned something um, when we were chatting earlier that a child explores the world. Do you think embodiment is a pathway to that? That that until we give machines a way, in essence, to experience the world, and I'm going to use that word with with uh, quote quote marks around it, that um, that that will always kind of limit what we're able to do. Is that embodiment that you identified as being important for humans? also important for computers? Well, so I would um, just differentiate the idea of exploration from embodiment. So I think that exploration is a fundamental part of learning. Um, so I would say that we, yes, indeed, we'll be missing something unless we design systems that can explore their world. From my point of view, they may or may not be embodied in the usual sense of that word, which means that they can uh, move around and actuate with, within their environment. If you generalize that to software and say, um, are software agents embodied because they can do things in the world, then yeah, I guess I would say embodiment, but it doesn't have to be physical embodiment. So when, Earlier, when you uh, were, were talking about digital assistants, you said uh, Siri, comma, Cortana, and then you said, oh, and Google. And, and that, that highlights a really interesting thing that, um, that Amazon named theirs, uh, you named yours, um, 
Microsoft name there is, but Google's is just the Google Assistant. And, and you're undoubtedly familiar with kind of the, the worries that Weizenbaum had with Eliza and that, that he, he thought there was a, you know, that this was potentially problematic, that we name these devices and we identify with them as if they are human. And, you know, he said when a computer says, I understand, it's just a lie. There's no I and there's nothing that understands anything. Do you have, how would, how would you respond to Weizenbaum? Do you, do you think that's an area of concern or you think he was just off? Oh, I think it's definitely an area of concern. And it's really important in designing, I'll go back to conversational systems, systems like that that human beings interact with, that the, you, you do as much as possible to help the human being create a correct mental model of what it is that they're conversing with. So, um, you know, should it be named? Um, I, I think it's kind of convenient to, to name it, um, as you were just saying. It kind of makes it easier to talk about, but it immediately raises this danger of people overreading into it um, what it is, what it knows, etc. So I think it's very much something to be concerned about. You know, there was that case in Japan where there's a, a robot that they were just teaching how to navigate a mall and it very quickly learned that it got bullied by children uh, who would hit it and curse at it and all these things. And later when they asked the children, um, did you think it was like upset? Was it acting upset or was it, was it acting human-like or mechanical? They overwhelmingly said it was human-like. And, and I still have a bit of, of a aversion to interrupting um, the Amazon device. I can't say its name because it's on my desk right next to me. Uh, <laughs> interrupting it and, you know, telling it, stop. Um, and, and so I just wonder where it goes because you're right that people, uh, I, you know, it's like that Tom Hanks movie, um, Castaway, when, you know, his only friend was a soccer ball named Wilson uh, that, he, that he personified. And I remember there was a case in the 40s where they would show students a film of circles and lines moving around and ask them to construct stories and they would, you know, attribute to these lines and circles personalities and interactions and all of that. And it is such a tempting thing we do, and you can see it in people's relationships to their pets, that one wonders like how that's all going to sort itself out, or will we look back in 40 years and think, well, that was just crazy? Um, no, I, th I think you're absolutely right. I think that human beings um, are, uh, you know, extremely good at um, giving characteristics to objects, systems, etc. And I think that will continue. And as I said, that's very much a danger in artificial intelligence systems, the danger being that um, people assume too much knowledge, capability, understanding, uh, given what the system actually is. So um, part of the job of designing a system is, as I said before, to, to 
go as far as we can to give the person the right idea about what it is that they're dealing with. Another area that you uh, seem to be focused on, as, as I kind of was reading about you and your work, are is um, AI and uh, the aging population. Can you talk about what the goal is there and what you're doing and maybe some successes or failures you've had along the way? Well, so um, uh, yes, indeed. Um, we are SRI-wide, actually, um, looking at what we can do to address the, the problem, the worldwide problem of higher percentage of aging population, you know, lower percentage of, of caregivers. We read about this in the headlines all the time. And in particular, what we can do to um, have people uh, experience uh, an optimal life, the best that's, that's possible for them, as they age. And there's lots of things that we're looking at there. Um, we were just um, talking about conversational systems. We are looking at the problem of conversational systems that are aimed at the aging population um, because um, interaction um, tends to be a good thing and sometimes there's um, there aren't caregivers around or there aren't enough of them or they don't pay attention. So it might actually be interesting to, to have um, a conversational system that, that elderly people can talk to and interact with. And we're also looking at ways to, um, you know, unobtrusively and um, with, you know, preserving privacy to um, monitor the health of people um, using um, artificial intelligence techniques. So this is indeed a big area for us. Also, your uh, laboratory's work on information security, and you mentioned privacy earlier. Talk to me, if you would, about kind of the state of the art there. You know, across all of human history, there's been this like constant battle between the cryptographers and the people who break the codes. And, and it's unclear who has the upper hand in that. Uh, and it's the same thing with information security. Where are we kind of in that world? And is it, is it easier to use AI to defend against breaches or to use that technology to do the breach? Well, I think it's, <laughs> the situation is very much as you describe. It's a constant battle um, between attackers and defenders. And I don't think it's any easier to use AI to attack or defend. Um, it can be used for both and I'm sure is being used for both. It's just, it's uh, one of the many uh, sets of techniques that can be used in cybersecurity. There's a lot of concern wrapped up in uh, artificial intelligence and its ability to uh, automate a lot of work and then the effect of that automation on employment. What's your perspective on how that is going to unfold? Well, my first perspective is that it's a very complex issue. I think it's um, very hard to predict 
the effect of any technology on jobs um, in the long term. So just, I mean, as I reflect, uh, I live in the Bay Area, um, a huge percentage of the jobs that people have in the Bay Area didn't exist at all 100 years ago. And I would say a pretty good percentage didn't exist 20 years ago. So I'm certainly not capable of projecting in the long run what the effects of AI and automation will be. Um, you can certainly guess that it will be disruptive. All new technologies are disruptive. And that's something as a society we need to um, take aboard and deal with. But, but how it's going to work out in the long term, I really don't know. Well, do you take any comfort that we've had transformative technologies aplenty, right? We had uh, the assembly line, which is a kind of artificial intelligence. We had the electrification of industry. We had the replacement of animal power with steam power. Um, I mean, each of those was incredibly disruptive in the, when you look kind of back across history, each one of them happened incredibly fast and yet unemployment never surged from them. Um, the unemployment in the U S has always been between four and 10% other than the depression. And it, you can't point and say, ah, oh, when this technology came out, unemployment went briefly to 14% or anything like that. Do you take comfort in that? Or do you say, well, this technology is materially different. Um, so I take comfort in it in the sense that I have a lot of faith in the um, creativity and agility of people. So I think, I think what that historical data is reflecting is the ability of individuals and communities to adapt to change. And I expect that to continue. Now, you know, artificial intelligence technology is different, but I think that we will learn to adapt and thrive with artificial intelligence in the world. How is it different though, really? Because technology increases human productivity. That's kind of what it does. That's what steam did. That's what electricity did. That's what the industrial revolution did. And that's what artificial intelligence does. How is it different? I think um, in, in the sense that you're talking about, it's not different. Um, it is meant to augment human capability. Um, it's augmenting now um, to some extent, different kinds of human activity, although arguably that's been going on for a long time too. Um, you know, calculators, um, printing presses, things like that have taken over human activities that um, were, were once thought to be, you know, core human things. So it's, it's sort of, a difference in degree, not a difference in kind. So one, one interesting thing about technology and how it, how the wealth that it produces is disseminated through culture is that 
in one sense, technology helps everybody in that, you know, you get a better TV or better brakes in your car, better deodorant or, or whatever. But in two other ways, it, it doesn't, um, it, if, if you're somebody who sells your labor for um, like by the hour and your company can produce a labor saving device, that, that benefit doesn't accrue to you. It generally would accrue to the, to the shareholders of the company in terms of higher earnings. But if you're kind of self-employed or you, you buy your own time, as it were, you get to pocket all of the advances that technology gets you because it makes your productivity higher and, and, and you get all of that. So do you, do you think that the technology does inherently uh, make worse kind of the income inequality situation or, or am I missing something in that analysis? Well, so I don't, I don't think that it is inherent and I'm, I'm not sure that, you know, the fault lines will, will cut that way. I think the, we were just talking about the fact that there's disruption and what that tends to mean is that um, some people will benefit in the short term and, and some of the people will suffer in the short term. I think it, it's, I started by saying this is a complex issue. I think one of the complexities is actually, you know, determining what that is. So, for example, um, let, let's take stuff around us now like um, Uber and other ride-hailing services. Um, clearly, um, that has disrupted the world of taxi drivers, but on the other hand, um, has created opportunities for many, many, many other drivers, including taxi drivers. So what, you know, what's the ultimate cost benefit there? I don't know. And, you know, who, who wins and loses? Is it the, the cab companies? Is it the cab drivers? I, I think it's hard to say. I think it was Niels Bohr that said making predictions is hard, especially if they're about the future. So, you know, exactly. and he was, he was a Nobel laureate. There's um, the military, of course, is a multi-trillion dollar uh, industry and uh, is always, you know, an adopter of technology. And there seems to be a debate about making weapon systems that have autonomous, can make autonomous kill decisions. Do you think that that is like um, that debate is, is, how do you think that's going to unfold? Well, again, I, I think that um, this is a very difficult problem and is a touch point um, issue. And it's, it's just, it's one manifestation of an overall problem of how we trust complex systems of any kind. So this is, um, to me anyway, this goes way beyond artificial intelligence. Um, any kind of complex system, we don't really know how it works, what its limitations are, etc. cetera. Um, how do we put boundaries on its behavior and how do we develop trust in what it's done? I think that's one of the, the critical research problems of the next few decades. So you're somebody who believes we're gonna build a general intelligence. And it seems that when you read the popular media, 
there's a certain, you know, number of people that, that are afraid of that technology. And, you know, I mean, you know, all the names, Elon Musk says it's like summoning the demon. Um, Professor Hawking says it's, uh, could be the, the last thing we do. Bill Gates says he's in the camp of people who are worried about it, don't understand why other people aren't. Wozniak, and the list goes on and on. Then you have another list of people uh, who just almost roll their eyes at those sorts of things, like uh, Andrew Ng, who says it's like worrying about overpopulation on Mars. The roboticist Rodney Brooks says, uh, you know, that, that it's not helpful. I mean, Zuckerberg and so forth. So two questions. Why, among a room full of incredibly smart people, is there such a disagreement over it? And two, where, where do you fall in that kind of debate? Well, I think the, the, the reason for disagreement is that it's, it's a complex issue and it involves something that you were just talking about with the Niels Bohr quote. Um, you're making predictions about the future. Um, you're, you're making predictions about the pace of change and, you know, when certain things will occur, what will happen when they occur, really based on, on very little information. So um, I'm not at all surprised that there's dramatic difference of opinion. But to be clear, but to be clear, it's not a room full of people saying, well, these are really complex issues. It's a room full of people where half of them are saying, I know it is a problem, and half of them who say, I know it is not a problem. Well, um, I, well so... Um, I guess that might be a, um, a way of strongly stating a belief. Um, they can't possibly know. Whether right, right. They're, but they're not, like everything you're saying, you're taking measured tones. Like, well, we don't know. It could happen this way or that way. It's very complicated. They're not taking that same tone. Well, so um, let, me, let me get to your second question. We can come back to the, to the first one. So my personal view um, and here, here comes this measured response that you just accused me of, is, yes, I'm worried about it, but honestly, I'm worried about other things more. So the, I think that um, this is something to be concerned about. It's not an irrational concern, um, but there are... Um, other concerns that I think are more pressing. For example, I'm, I'm much more worried about people using technology for untoward purposes than I am about superintelligence taking over the world. That is, um, that is an inherent problem with uh, technology's ability to multiply human effort if, if human effort is malicious. So is, there, is that an insoluble problem? I mean, if you can make an AGI, you can almost by definition make an evil AGI, correct? Um, yes. So, the, so just to go back a little bit, you asked me whether I thought AGI was theoretically possible, whether there are any theoretical barriers. I don't think there are theoretical barriers. Um, so we can extrapolate and say, yes, someday that kind of thing will be created. Um, when, when it is, 
um, you're right. I think any any technology, any any aspect of human behavior can be um, done for the good or the evil um, as from the point of view of some people. So I, I have to say that another thing I think about when when we talk about superintelligence, we're already living. So I, I was relating it to complex systems in general. Right. So I think of of big systems that exist today that we live with, like um, you know high speed automated trading of securities or weather forecasting. These are these are complex systems that definitely influence our behavior. I'm going to go out on a limb and say nobody knows what's really going on with them, and we've learned to adapt to them. So, it's interesting. I, I think part of the difference of opinion boils down to a few technical questions that are very specific and that we don't know the answer to. And one of them is, um, it seems like some people are kind of I don't want to say down on humans, but but they don't think human abilities like creativity and all of that are all that difficult. Machines are going to be able to master that. Uh, there's a group of people who would say the amount of time between one of these systems being able to self-improve is short, not long. I think that uh, some would say intelligence isn't really that hard, that there's probably a few breakthroughs. And so you, you stack enough of those together and you say, okay, it's really soon. And it, but but if, you, if you kind of take the opposite side on those, creativity is very hard, intelligence is very hard, not, then you're, you're kind of in the other camp. And so um, I don't doubt the sincerity of any of the parties involved. Now, but, but on your comment about the theoretical possibility of a, of a general intelligence, just to kind of explore that for a moment without any regard for when it will happen, how, you know, we understand how a computer could, for instance, measure temperature, but we don't really understand how a computer, or I don't, could feel pain. Um, to be, for a machine to go from measuring the world to experiencing the world, we don't really know that. And so is that required? to make a general intelligence, to be able to, in essence, experience qualia, to, to be conscious or not? Well, I think that um, if, we're, if we're truly talking about general intelligence in the sense that I think most people mean it, which is uh, human-like intelligence, then one thing that people do is experience the world and react to it and it becomes part of the way um, that we think and reason about the world. So yes, I think um, if, if we want computers to have that kind of capability, then we have to figure out a way for them to experience it. So the, the question then becomes, and you know, I, I think this is in the realm of the very difficult, when, to use your example, when a human being or, or any animal um, experiences pain, there is some 
physical and then electrochemical reaction going on that is somehow interpreted in the brain. And um, I don't know how all of that works, but I believe that it's theoretically possible to figure out how that works and to create artifacts that exhibit that behavior. That's um, because we can't really confine it to how humans feel pain, right? But I guess I'm still struggling over that. What would that even kind of look like? Or, or is, your, is your point, I don't know what it looks like, but that would be the next, that would be well, what's so required to do it. I don't know. I definitely don't know what it looks like on the inside. Okay. But you can um, also look at the question of, you know, uh, what, what is the, the value of pain or how does pain influence behavior? And for a lot of things, um, pain is a warning um, that we should avoid something, um, touching a hot object, um, moving an injured limb, etc. So the, there's a question of whether we can get computer systems to um, be able to have that kind of warning sensation, um, which again, isn't exactly the same thing as uh, creating a system that feels pain in any way like an animal does, but could get the same kind of value out of the experience. You, um, you also, your lab does work in robotics as well as artificial intelligence, is that correct? Right. And so talk a little bit about that work and how those two things come together, artificial intelligence and robots. Well, I think that... Um, Traditionally, um, artificial intelligence and robotics have, have been the same area of exploration. Um, one, of, one of the features of, of any you know, maturing discipline, which I think AI is, is that um, various special, specializations or specialty groups start forming naturally as the field expands and as there's more and more to know. So the, the fact that you're even asking the question shows that there has, there has become a specialization in robotics that is seen as separate from, um, some people may say part of, some people may say completely different from artificial intelligence. So as a matter of fact, um, Although my labs um, work on aspects of robotics, um, other labs within SRI that are not part of the Information Computing Sciences Division also work on robotics. So the, the thing about robotics is that you're looking at things like motion, manipulation, um, actuation, doing things in the world, and that um, is a very interesting set of problems that has created a discipline around it. Then on top of that or surrounding it is the kind of AI reasoning, perception, 
etc that enables those things to actually work so to me um, there are different aspects of the same problem of having to go back to something you said before some you know embodiment of intelligence that can interact with the real world the roboticist rodney brooks who i mentioned earlier uh says something to the effect that he thinks there's something about biology something very profoundly basic that we don't understand which he calls the juice and to be clear he's 100 percent convinced the juice is is biology that there's there's nothing you know mystical about it that it's just something we don't understand and he says it's the difference between you put a robot in a box and it tries to get out, it just kind of runs through a protocol and tries to climb and tries to, but you put an animal in a box and it frantically wants out of that box and it's scratching and it's getting, it's getting agitated and worked up and, and that, that difference between those two systems he calls the juice. Do you, do you think there is something like that that we don't yet know about biology that would be beneficial to have to put in robots? Uh, Gee, I think that there's, there's a whole lot <laughs> that we don't know about biology, and I can assure you there's a huge amount that I don't know about biology. Um, I don't, I mean, calling it the juice, um, I, I don't know what we learn from that. Certainly the fact that animals um, have um, motivations and um, built-in desires that make them desperately want to get out of the box, okay, is part of this whole issue of what we were talking about before of, of how and whether to introduce that into artifacts, into artificial systems. Is it a good thing to have in robots? Um, I would say yes. This, this to me is back to the discussion about pain because presumably the animal is acting that way out of uh, a desire for self-preservation, that something, something that it has inherited or learned tells it that being trapped in a box is not good for its long-term survival prospects. Um, yes, it would be good for uh, robots to be able to protect themselves. So I'll ask you kind of another either-or question. You, you, you may. Uh... Uh, not uh, want to answer. So the human body uh, uses 100 watts and we use 20 of that to power our brain and we use 80 of it to power our body. Uh, the, the biggest supercomputers in the world use 20 million watts and they're not able to do what, what the brain does. Which of those is a harder thing to replicate? Do you, if, if you had to build a, a computer that operated uh, with the capabilities of the human brain that used 20 watts or you had to build a, a robot that only used 80 watts, it could mimic the mobility of a human. Which of those is a harder problem? Um, well, as you suggested when you brought this up, I, I can't take that either or. Um, I think that they're both really hard. I'm, the, the way you phrase that makes me think of uh, somebody who came to give a talk at SRI a number of years ago. And, um, was somebody who's interested in robotics. And he said that as a student, he had learned about um, the famous um, 
AI programs that had become successful in playing chess. And as he learned more and more about it, he realized that what was really hard was a human being moving, picking up the chess piece and moving it around, not the thinking that was involved in chess. Um, I think he was absolutely right about that because chess is a game that's abstract and, and has certain rules. So even though it's very complex, it's not the same thing as um, the complexities of actual manipulation of objects. But if you ask the question you did, which is comparing it not to chess, but to the full range of, of human activity, then I would just have to say they're both hard. Um, there isn't a kind of a Moore's law of robotics. Is the physical, you know, motors and servos and materials and power and all of that. Is that improving at a rate commiserate with our advances in AI or is that, taking longer and is slower? Well, I, th I think that you you'd, um, have to look at that in more detail. So th there has been tremendous progress in the um, ability to build systems that can manipulate objects, um, that use all kinds of interesting techniques, the cost is going down, the, the accuracy and flexibility is going up. In fact, that's um, one of the specialty areas of the robotics part of SRI. That's absolutely happening. Um, the, and there's also been tremendous um, progress on aspects of artificial intelligence. But other parts of artificial intelligence are coming along much more slowly, and other parts of robotics are coming along much more slowly. So I, I, you're about the 60th guest on the show, and I think that all of them, uh, certainly all of them that I have asked, consume science fiction, sometimes quite a bit of it. Uh, are you a science fiction buff? I'm certainly not a science fiction buff. Um, I have read science fiction. I think I used to read a lot more science fiction than I do now. But I think science fiction is great. I think it uh, can be very inspiring. Well, do you know, do you, is there any vision of the future in movie or TV or book or anything that you look at and say, yes, that could happen. That's how the world might unfold. You know, you could say her or Westworld or Ex Machina or Star Trek or any of those. Um, nope. I think um, when I see things like that, I think they're very entertaining. Um, they're very creative, but they're works of fiction that follows certain rules or best practices about um, how to write fiction. So there's always some conflict, there's resolution, there's things like that, that, that are completely different from what happens in the real world. All right. Well, it has been a fantastically interesting hour and I think we've covered a whole lot of ground and I want to thank you for being on the show, Bill. It's been a real pleasure. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you want to learn more about the latest innovations in artificial intelligence and machine learning, we suggest you visit our friends at ARM at ARM.com.